So tonight we're going to be focusing primarily on the body center and our exploration of the Dharma. But I would like to do that in the context of why we're practicing and how we practice, particularly because uh, at least a third of you are, are pretty new to practice. So to start with a poem that I like very much. This is by, called Vaciliations by Yeats. My 50th year had come and gone. My 50th year had come and gone. I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, an open book and an empty cup on the marble tabletop. So we can picture this, sitting there in a, a, a little shop at a coffee shop in London, reading a book. He's finished his coffee, and he's there by himself, and he's past 50, and he, here he is in his life. My 50th year had come and gone. I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, an open book and an empty cup on the, mabel, on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes, more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. And twenty minutes, more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. Maybe uh, many of you have had some moment like that in your childhood or in, in an adult part of your life. I certainly can remember uh, moments like that in my own childhood. And uh, I can think of a very similar moment to this when I was in college and I was uh, leaving a class, an uh, English class one night late and just seeing the street light hit the leaves of a tree and just standing there, just agog in the world being so perfect just as it was, and every cell of my body awake and alive and just feeling so present in all ways. And at the time thinking, you know, as being a young man in college, this is how I want my life to be. And somehow imagining that I could uh, immediately choose some sort of uh, path that would yield that right away. But life doesn't yield that right away at all. Life is more uh, complex than that. Life is often uh, one appearance of a difficulty after another, one, dif one disappointment, one uncertainty, one sort of okayness, and then a lot of wanting, and then getting it, and maybe not so satisfied with it. It's a lot of that. It's a lot of that. We have our good moments, and we have our moments that aren't so good. And that is what we are confronted with. And when the Buddha, in his own life, started being aware, started being awake to, how does this life work? That's what he noticed. He started having this awareness as a, in his late 20s, in which he had what would be, at that time, a near-perfect life. Married, with a, a very affluent, 
uh, with a, a young child, and he became aware of the fact that all of the things that he cared about were of the nature to grow old, to get sick, and to die, and that he himself was of the nature to grow old, get sick, and die. And this awakened in him this question, well then how do I relate to all of this? How do I respond at this, given that this is how it is? And so he began his own journey. And for many of us, we come to the Dharma with these kinds of questions. Maybe because of a lot of difficulty in our lives, or maybe because of a particular disappointment, or maybe because we've actually had a lot of good things happen to us. And we go, well, is all that it? Is that all there is to it? What happens now? Where do we go from here? Do I want to make more money? Is that going to make me happy? Do I want more glory? What is it I'm about? Where is the, where is the deeper meaning of this? And so that brings us to practice. And then for some of us, we've had a moment like this in a more uh, recent time of our lives, a moment of like, that's, uh, uh, the, the, how did he put it? That my body of a sudden blaze, this kind of full awareness, this kind of ecstasy that's there in the moment. And we are looking for some way to understand this, to have some context of this, and to be in, in uh, line with this kind of an experience. All of these different uh, ways can bring us to the Dharma. When uh, we think of the happiness in terms of our practice, we're not looking for a particular experience in the body or in the heart center or in the head center. We're opening to what experience is presenting itself to us. My teacher's name is Ajahn Sumedho, and his teacher's name was Ajahn Chah, and this is how Ajahn Chah describes uh, this, the kind of happiness that, that we study in Buddhism. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. Your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So a kind of happiness that's not going after any particular experience, but a kind of happiness that is willing, is at ease, is happy to be present in the stillness of this moment and meet whatever experience may arise from this. This is the happiness of the Buddha. And so we come to we, we come to um, uh, this, this retreat seeking to find our own version, our own kind of relationship to our lives and what the Buddha had to offer in the way of, of freedom. 
Each of our lives is different, unique, and yet each of our lives is made up of these impersonal elements of experience. So sometimes you have anger and sometimes I have anger. Sometimes you have excitement and I have excitement. Our experience of that anger and that excitement is unique. But the nature of anger and excitement is impersonal. Anger is anger, excitement is excitement. And so how is it that we in our unique individual ways make our peace with this? How do we awaken in these three centers in order to find a kind of harmony, a kind of ease with our life just as it is? not counting on having some other kind of life, but this life, just now. In this regard, the Buddha had two key teachings in the, the Theravadan tradition of which we're part of, Theravadan being the oldest uh, of the Buddha's teachings, these texts that we refer to are by far the oldest of any of the Buddhist traditions. And one of these teachings is the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths was the Buddha's first teaching, and it's the teaching that is considered to contain all of the rest of the teachings. In one sense, everything else is simply an explanation of the Four Noble Truths, or many different kinds of explanations of the Four Noble Truths to help people understand them, to realize them. The first of these Four Noble Truths is that there is suffering, that there is what's termed dukkha, that life is difficult, that life is stressful, that life is unsatisfactory, that life is uncertain, that the kind of happiness that comes from getting what we want is unreliable, doesn't last, and is ultimately not satisfying. So there is this kind of challenge that life is difficult. Not that all of life is difficult, not that all of life is suffering, but there is entwined, inseparable, from the relative world that we live in, this difficulty, this stressfulness, this dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness. And that we are, in a very uh, practical existential way, we're forced to confront that. We can either own up to it or we can uh, ignore it in some way, distract ourselves with uh, various pleasures of the world or various kinds of uh, things that we go after. But in the end, it's always there waiting for us because it's the nature of this world. So what to do about that? The fact that you're here means that in one form or another, consciously or unconsciously, you've got some awareness of this and some desire to start to experience a way of working with this, coming to terms with it. So the first noble truth is that there is this, this uh, stress, this, this dukkha this uh, unreliability, this unsatisfaction with life. And then the second noble truth is that there is a cause of this stress, of this difficulty, of this unsatisfactoriness to life, and that is attachment. And that we can know this for ourselves. And uh, there's a, a lot that we will be doing as we go through these three centers where we see all the different ways that we're attached the ways that we push and pull at life, that we can't life, let life just be, that we can't sit still in our minds 
like that clear forest pool that Ajahn Chah described. But as we work these days together, as we awaken in these three centers, we start to have more access, sense more possibility of being able to stay present. And as we do that, we start to have some hint of letting loose of attachment, and thus letting loose of a lot of our suffering. The third noble truth is that there is a cessation of suffering. This is a, a radical proclamation and um, is the fruition of the path. And uh, for, for most of our purposes, we take the third noble truth as inspiration, but we actually work with the first two noble truths, primarily through the fourth noble truth, which is that there is a path to the end of suffering, which is the Eightfold Path. So these are the Four Noble Truths. The second teaching that is so critical in the Theravada tradition is called the Satipatthana Sutta, which Eugene referred to last night when he started referring to the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha describes these four uh, ways of uh, looking at all of your life experience and that you can work with each of these four aspects of your life experience, which cover the entire spectrum of your life experience. And the first of those being the body, the first foundation being the body, the second foundation being awareness of pleasant and unpleasant as it's arising in the moment. This is called Vedna. So this, that there is this body, there's all these awarenesses around the body, there's this horizon of pleasant and unpleasant. And then the third foundation is that there, is this, there are these various mind states, uh, emotions and uh, all kinds of thinking processes involved in these mind states that can be known. And then fourth, the way of dividing our experience is that we can actually see the truth of our experiences. We can see the, the actual uh, composition of them what I term the big D Dharma in all the Dharmas, all of the, the truths of our experience. So as we learn to be with each moment of our life, just as it is, whether it's in the body, whether it's the pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's in the mind, we then start to be able to, to see these big underlying truths or this very structure of this reality and the very structure of our own nature in such a way that we come to a new relationship to it, one that has, has joy in it, has more ease in it, that has freedom in it, that has liberation, that has varying degrees of the end of suffering that happens uh, as we mature in our practice. Interestingly, in the teachings of the Four Foundations, there's all of these different teachings all along the way. And the very last teaching, the very last practice that you do and the Satipatthana Sutta is you practice, you realize the Four Noble Truths. So the very end of the practice of the Four Foundations is the realization of the Four Noble Truths. You're realizing it as you go along, but this full realization is, uh, comes um, as, as you mature through the practice. So that's one side. On the other side, the Four Foundations start with the body.
So this entire path of liberation can start with awareness of the body. Awakening to this body center. Feeling your body just now. Seems so simple, doesn't it? That a whole path of liberation could come just being aware of your breath this moment, just being aware of heaviness in the body if you're sleepy, being awareness of uh, if there's a kind of tension of restlessness in the body, being aware of that. Just following this breath again, now being aware of your hands in this moment, that this whole path of liberation would start so simple. That was part of the genius of the Buddha. I have, uh, after all of these years of practice, I am in more awe today than when I started in terms of the brilliance of his understanding, the fullness of his perception, the sharpness of his clarity in terms of the path to liberation. So a few quotes about the body from the Buddha. There is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to a deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to village, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered in the body. Wow. Wow. It all can unfold and like a hologram, it's all contained. If you start here, it all opens up for you. Another quote from the Buddha. If the body is not mastered, the mind cannot be mastered. If the body is mastered, mind is mastered. And this is through meditation. And then last night, uh, Eugene was uh, quoting from Ajahn Mun. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, and the selflessness of the body while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. Just what you've been focused on today, this experience of body. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So through the body, the heart center becomes awake. Through the body, the head center becomes awake. It's quite amazing that we would start with something that seems so simple, that seems so everyday, something that we start out maybe assuming we know already. Well, I'm very aware of my body already. But maybe and maybe not, at least in the way the Buddha is inviting us to do this. We start with the body in part, the Buddha started with the body, because it is, of all of our experiences, the most easily felt. And this idea of the felt experience, I will be coming back to. If there's one thing I would have you leave this retreat with, it's this uh, having a personal relationship with the felt experience so that you, you know what that means, what it feels like to you. So there's this awareness 
of, of, the, of the body as a felt experience. It's also one of the places where we're most identified. We think we are our bodies a lot of the time. And boy, does that cause us suffering. It causes us so much confusion in our mind. It leads to so many unwholesome, unskillful acts and such torment and the criticism and all of these different things and fear and anxiety and because we're so identified. And as we start to watch the body, we realize its independence, we realize its impermanence, that it's always changing. It's, it's not selfness in that particular way. A third reason that the Buddha started with the body is that if we're going to practice, we have to in some way show up in this moment. If we are not present in this moment, how can we be alive? How can we participate? How can we act? And so through this awareness of the body, we're in the moment because you have to be in the moment to know the body. Give you an example. I want you to notice right now what the bottoms of your feet feel like. Be very specific. How do you know that there are bottoms to your feet? How do you know? So what is it you notice about it? You may notice that there's a warmth or a coolness to, the, to that experience of the bottoms of the feet. You may notice that there's a hardness or a softness. You may notice that there's a vibration or a pressure. You may sense a, a kind of form to it. These are all the four elements that the Buddha taught as part of awareness of the body. You can't casually know that. You have to be paying attention. You have to be awake in this moment to that experience to know what you're experiencing. In much of our lives, we go on automatic. We are slightly turning from experience and therefore not fully present, not fully available to live our own lives. We've learned this for many uh, uh, good reasons, but to have it become a habit, to have it become automatic, is to deny ourselves a great deal in our lives. And through this awareness of the body, we create a new habit of mind where we are present for our experience. First, the experience in the body center, but then also in the heart center and in the head center. We get used to being present. We start trusting. We have faith that we can handle being present. Life is scary. Life is uncertain. We never know in one moment what's going to come in the next moment. So therefore, we're a little bit pulled away to a significant degree, it's because we're anticipating pleasant and unpleasant. We're seeking to control pleasant and unpleasant. So we're a little like turned to one side or the other around our own life experience. That is a misperception that that's a smart strategy as a habitual approach. There are times when we do need to distract ourselves but to have that be habitual, not smart at all. Not smart in terms of surviving, not smart in terms of having a good time, and not smart in terms of feeling alive.
not smart in gaining wisdom, not smart in gaining freedom. So we learn in this very simple way of being with the body to be present in the moment. It also gives us a, a groundedness so that if we're uh, in a meeting and uh, we get uh, overly excited, we can drop back into the groundedness of the body. If we're in an interaction with our significant other and it's, uh, our feelings are getting hurt or we're getting mad or, or we're uncertain as to what to say next, just find the breath, just find the body, find those feet on the floor. It grounds us, it keeps us present, but it also calms us, it calms the nervous system. When the nervous system is calm, many beneficial things come. We also, when we stay in the body, we do observe all of these changes in the body and we uh, pierce this veil of illusion that the body is solid. So as we become more aware of the body, when we get thrown off, we are able to uh, put ourselves back together. I studied the martial art of Aikido for many years, and uh, just as I was training for my uh, second degree black belt, uh, I, a person who, had, a young man who had just gotten his black belt, uh, was throwing me around, and um, uh, as he was throwing me around, I should have said, you know you're overdoing this for me because I have a hip that catches. And he was really fast and he was really throwing me fast. And I was having such a good time being pounded that I, I didn't pay attention to my own body. I knew my body. My body was giving me these signals. But I was having a good time and I did not stay mindful. And sure enough, my hip caught and rip went my knee. And that was the end of my Aikido experience. But it was not the end of my living the Aikido experience of staying grounded. And one of the things that the founder of Aikido taught was this being grounded in the body, being centered in the body, being centered in the hara, this area two to three finger widths beneath the belly button that Eugene was referring to last night. And one of the great things he said, because uh, people would say, how do you do this? He was just this little guy, and uh, there's these films of him throwing, he, he was a, a Japanese gentleman, and, um, this, and he was teaching during the time that uh, the U.S. was occupying Japan after World War II, and there's these films of these uh, huge uh, Marines attacking him, and him throwing around like they're pillows. And they would say, well, how do you do this? And he would say, you think I never get off center? But the truth is, I get back on center so fast that you don't see me. I get thrown off center all the time. I get ungrounded, but I come back so fast that you don't notice it. And indeed, as we learn to be with the body in our own life, life's got its ups and downs. Uh, uh, finding the Dharma doesn't do away with life's ups and downs. You're going to feel life's ups and downs but this ability to come back, to be grounded, to regain the center through this awareness of the body. So powerful, it makes such a difference. And as we offer the Dharma, we are offering it as a form of empowerment. It's not a guru uh, 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 kind of teaching. 
It's an empowerment to you, always turning the power back to you. Like this cartoon that, uh, for whatever reason, strikes me as very funny. Humpty Dumpty is sitting on a therapist's couch, and it's the, the therapist is sitting there uh, taking notes, and Humpty Dumpty's sitting there sort of telling all of his woes, and the therapist says to him, eventually, I'd like to see you able to put yourself back together. <laughs> and it is that coming into the groundedness to bring ourselves back together that we learn through awareness of the body. It's easy to want the good times in practice and view the bad times as some sort of a mistake. Well, I'm not doing well because, you know, I'm restless right now or I'm sleepy or I can't concentrate or I don't have much mindfulness or whatever you're, whatever you're, uh, uh, you're saying to yourself in that moment. But the most valuable times of practice for you might be the times that you're most dissatisfied. Think of that. Why? Because that's when you're really showing up for yourself that ordinarily you wouldn't show up for yourself. You would turn on the TV and go into clicker mode, or you'd open that refrigerator door, or you'd go to the email, or you'd pick up the phone, or uh, uh, open a bottle or light a joint or whatever it might be that would be your way of distraction. But instead, you sit here and you're just with it. Wow, look at my mind. It won't, it won't stay on the breath for even one breath. Wow. And you're gaining this uh, power, this empowerment to be able to be with yourself just as you are in the moment. You're moving what... Uh, when. Uh, I've written a book about the Four Noble Truths called Dancing with Life, and in it I describe that change as moving from a reactive mind state to a responsive mind state. So the reactive mind responds to pleasant and unpleasant like a puppet on a string. If it's pleasant, you want more of it. If it's unpleasant, you want, you want to get rid of it or avoid it. And that's the, that's the kind of uh, Pavlovian rat kind of <laughs> relationship, or not relationship really, but a kind of uh, just reactivity to life that uh, many people have. But through this uh, uh, showing up in your life, starting with showing up through body awareness, we start to be able to move to a responsiveness. Because if it's pleasant, that's great, but it's just pleasant. If it's unpleasant, not what we would prefer, but it's just unpleasant. We can bear it. We can stay embodied in the face of pleasant or unpleasant. Being willing to do this in this way leads us to this new relationship to our life. Again, to quote Ajahn Chah, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to face the first. Each of you 
in this day of practice, have chosen that second kind of suffering. You have stayed present for body aches, for restlessness, for uh, your mind saying, you know, I could have taken this as a vacation week. <laughs> Why didn't I come to another retreat? Whatever it might be, you have stayed present for yourself. You have begun a new relationship, a responsive rather than a reactive relationship in doing that. So how do we practice? Right now we're practicing with the body. This staying mindful, this mindfulness is referred to as sati, thus the satipatthana sutta. We are, we are staying mindful of the body. And we do this in two ways. We're concentrating, that is we're collecting and unifying the mind around a particular body experience, which is the breath. So we do that part of the time. And the other part of the time, we practice insight, vipassana. We practice insight through looking at our experience along the spectrum of the four foundations, starting with the body. So the insight comes from our attending to the moment. Sati means this attending to, standing near, standing under. If that's all, just attending, but so hard to do. As we stand under, as we stand near our experience, we are receiving our experience in this way. Insight arises on its own when the conditions and causes are appropriate. We can't practice insight itself. We create the conditions where insight's likely to arise. And we have personal insights. You've all probably had some of those today. And then we have these impersonal or dharmic insights about the nature of, of this reality, about the nature of our own Buddha nature. And, and so that's what we're involved in doing. When we're to do this, this is a practice that requires a lot of energy. And we have to go through um, the times when we don't have much energy and it, it affects our practice. Some of you have come here quite tired. It's going to affect your practice. It also requires a kind of clarity of mind. Again, when you're tired or when you've had a lot coming, uh, going on in your life or there's a lot of stuff coming up from your past, the mind may not be very clear. So you practice being tired or with the mind being fuzzy. It does require mindfulness, this ability to stay present. And maybe you can, some sits, not others, part of a sit, not part of a sit. This is all what we're working with. And it requires this kind of collected and unified mind, at least to the point that you can stay present long enough to have this ability to see something clearly in such a way that insight can arise. And sometimes we can do that, wow, just what a great sit. And other times, oh man. And days can be like that where there's like nothing going on. I have, uh, I've sat a six week retreat and had the first two weeks of it just not work for me at all in the sense of how I would like it to be because I had extreme exhaustion and was having to deal with that fatigue and so forth. That's okay. It's part of it. This willingness to be with what is, to stay embodied even if our experience isn't meeting our expectation. It's fine to have a goal 
fine to have goals of practice. But once those goals decay into expectation, they become rigid, they become lifeless. Goals are, uh, give us a sense of direction, how to allocate our resources. So we want to practice. We're going to, we're going to really work on our concentration. We're going to really practice our Vipassana, whatever it is. We're taking time off for the retreat. There's all this possibility around a goal. Healthy, nice things. But this expectation of ourselves is lifeless. It, it takes all away the possibility. And it, it makes us rigid and it deadens us to experience. So watching out for ourselves when we start to get expectations of what we're supposed to be able to be aware of in our body or what our body's supposed to feel like or when we're supposed to get rested or whatever the challenge might be. So to be mindful in a moment is to connect to the moment, to be able to sustain this connection on the moment long enough that we can know, oh, this is thinking or, or this is fantasy or oh, this is... This is this, uh, this is uh, burning in the back. This is stabbing in the back. So this making the contact, sustaining the contact for at least a little bit, having, having the ability to receive it so that we can stay with it. And then being willing to investigate it without taking it personal. So we do all of this with just sitting here watching our breath. We don't have to know a list of any of these things. We just learn how to do this. One of our great enemies is our judging mind. To discern what's true in the moment is skillful, but then to have a view and opinion about it, like, oh, this is bad practice, or I don't like this, all of that, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad yogi, that kind of judgment is not helpful. It's carrying around our inner critic. Again, another cartoon. This, another, I like therapist cartoons, as you'll be able to tell. Here's another man in therapist, and the therapist has got this exasperated look on his face. And the, and the, the uh, analysand, the client, is saying to him about his mother, who's the client's mother, is sitting there in the room looking at the therapist in a very disapproving way. And the, and the, the client's saying, my mother happens to be a remarkably insightful woman. And so we carry around these, in, these uh, inner judges just like that. So it would be like taking your mother to therapy with you. Does that sound like a good idea? <laughs> and yet we do. We have these, we, these inner judges that we bring to the cushion with us. And we many times let them be in charge. So the trick is not to try to get rid of them, but just don't let them be in charge. One way I describe that is okay, this judge can sit there in the car with you and say, well, I think you should be going faster. I think you should take a ride here. You just don't let it behind the wheel of the car. It's not mature enough to, to be driving the car. So that you, again, this sense of empowerment, that you have your own power. To do this practice does require faith, not belief. You're not asked to believe in anything but to have the faith that you can affect your own experience. That by being present, you can know what's true and develop a relationship with life that's, that is empowered, that gives you this choice between a reactive and a responsive mind. 
to have this much faith that it might be possible. You don't have to believe that it is possible. Just the faith that you can see for yourself. This was the Buddha's last words, to, to be a lamp unto yourself, to, to hold faith, to, to hold, uh, to, hold to, the, to the truth as your lamp. And so we have to have this kind of faith that we can discover for ourselves. And it takes, it takes some time to develop this faith. Because many times when we're sitting here, we're going, wow, I can't do this, this doesn't work. I have all of these views and opinions about it. A poem from David White called Close to Home. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow night after night, faithful even in its fading from fullness, slowly becoming that last curling an impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I do, but I have no faith myself. I do not give it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. So poignant to caption that. You don't have to have faith before this moment, just now. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow night after night, faithful even in its fading from fullness, slowly becoming that last curling and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith myself. I do not give it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. Willingness to open in that moment when that judging mind, that mother sitting there in the therapist's office with you, saying, no, you can't do this. You're wrong, you're wrong. Oh no, I can be with this. I can stay here. Just as I am, just as this moment is. I can stay in this body, in this moment. Last night I talked about the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha as refuge. And I was thinking about it in preparing this talk. And one way we could talk about taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha is we could think about our embodied Buddha nature, that is this body in space-time, Buddha nature embodied in this moment, that we awaken in this embodied moment to our Buddha nature, and this embodied nature clearly knowing the Dharma, the truth, that we are everything and we are nothing. And through this knowing, finding the relatedness of Sangha, the love, whether it's Sangha community with one person or many, Sangha in the family, Sangha here, finding community, finding this relatedness, this connection, feeling connected to all. Uh, one of our teachers uh, had this wonderful uh, uh, teaching quote. It goes something like this. When I see that I am nothing, 
that is wisdom. When I see that I am everything, that is love. My life flows like a river between these, these two. When I see that I am nothing, when I see that it's all empty, that is wisdom. When I see that I am everything, that is love. My life flows like a river between these two. This embodied feeling, staying in the body, with both these truths being realized and forgotten and remembered and forgotten and rediscovered and found in a new way, being willing to stay present, to stay embodied as we go through this process. This staying embodied is a felt experience. It's not a concept. It's not a label. It's a felt experience. So hold up your right hand and look at your right hand and I want you to give every label, every concept you can see about it. So like you might notice, in my instance, I notice there's, there's the, all these lines in my palm and I look at them, and actually there's my last name initial in my palm. So that's very conceptual. And I, I notice, oh, well, there's, there's five appendages, and just whatever do you notice, just noticing. You might look at the other side of the hand. So you're observing lots of things. That's not a felt experience. Now close your eyes, and... Uh, squeeze your hand and open your hand. Imagine you were opening something with your hand. Imagine that you were pushing something away. Imagine you're holding something with your hand, like a teacup. That's the felt experience. And open your eyes and let your hand down. So this morning when we were doing the walking meditation and you were shifting your weight and lifting the hill and coming back to center, lifting the other hill, that's the felt experience. Every center has a felt experience. We learn it most easily in the body, but the heart has a felt experience to it. Even the head center, there's a, there's a felt experience to all the experiences of the head, at least in my experience. So again... This, uh, this uh, staying in the moment has to do with this felt experience and not pushing and pulling at the felt experience. It's very hard not to push and pull at the felt experience. So just to, uh, again, another example, put your left hand out in front of you, put your right hand palm down, and now uh, with your right hand, start pushing on your left hand. It's pretty tiring, isn't it? creates tension and release it a moment. Feels better, huh? Now, start to pull that experience, but resist with your left hand. So you're trying to raise the left hand, but don't let your left hand raise. So now you're pulling at your experience. Again, it creates tension. There's a sense of separation and release it. And again, just release. Let your hand be resting. Learning to rest in the moment is like this. So let loose of that. We can rest our attention. First, we can rest. We can, the body rests on earth if we leave the body alone. We can easily notice this in the sitting, that the, we don't have to hold the body down to earth. It doesn't float away. It doesn't get swallowed. It rests on earth. And in the same way, our attention can rest on the breath. 
And that's where we train this ability to have relaxed attention, where it just rests on an experience. And then we learn to direct our attention to any other body experience and then ultimately to, to all experience in this same way where whatever we are focusing on, it's just relaxed on it. We're not pushing and pulling at it. So much more soothing to the nervous system. So much more opening us to possibilities through this felt sense. The felt sense is a direct experience. It's non-conceptual. And it, 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 I, I sometimes refer to it as dropped attention because we can get into this heady uh, labeling of everything and not notice the actual experience. So it's dropped attention. It's dropped to the point of contact where the actual experience is happening. It is immediate and now. And it is here and now. It's into this, what we term the sacred nowness, which is not exactly in past or future or present. It's a different kind of present than this past future present. It's, it's now, it's got a, it's both here and not here simultaneously. And I can't begin to explain that to you. You only can find it through your own experience. But if you continue to show up, you will have many moments of experiencing that. When the felt experience, when we go through the felt experience in the body, we are in the present moment. That gives us an awareness of the present moment. When you start being a person who is aware in the present moment, you start having embodied presence. I don't know if you've ever had the good fortune to talk with someone who's got this embodied presence. It feels really good to talk with them. They seem available to you, and you certainly, if you're in a tight situation, you're quite happy to have someone leading who's got this sense of embodied presence. It's very strong, it's uh, palpable and reassuring. And it, it likewise for ourselves, when we have these moments of embodied presence, it feels good, it feels wholesome, it feels uh, uh, natural. We feel as though we've come home in some way. Very real, very uh, lending itself to being cultivated, this embodied presence. When we start to uh, work with the body center, you know, we take what we get. And many times what we're going to get is our past experiences. Because all of our experience has registered in our, at a cellular level in my experience base. And those, those past experiences can come up in all sorts of ways. They can be felt in the body, they can show up as uh, uh, memories in the head center, they can show up as emotions in the heart center, but it's, it's through the body that they come up. Some things may come up that you thought you'd already taken care of, and here they are back again. I would suggest to you that they've come up at a deeper level, and you're uh, processing them, letting loose of them at a far deeper level. So not to be discouraged, but rather encouraged. Or it's something that you've never been able to uh, get over, some big trauma or something. Here it's come up again. In this staying with it through this embodied presence, it will find its own way to freedom. Such that when it arises, 
which it may still arise as memory in the future, it will not define you. It may characterize you because that's part of your past, but it won't have this power to define you in this moment. And so you sometimes when you're staying in this body center, you get, you, you get a lot of past experience. Sometimes the, uh, the various habits of the body and the habits of the mind all show up in the body. So if you tend to have a habit of being restless, you're sitting there in that stillness that Ajahn Chah was talking about, and the body starts getting restless. That's okay. You're learning a new habit. Or you, you may have a, um, a, a moment when um, you, you feel as though you, uh, you can't leave your experience alone. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're having this pain in your back, and you keep trying to get rid of it. That's okay. Trying to get rid of back pain is like this. You just you get used to it so that you start to have more choice. No moment of experience in and of itself is incorrect. It's our relationship or lack thereof that is the challenge. So we're being with. We do not have to, we learn we don't have to act out experience. We learn we don't even have to move. So we're having this, uh, our, 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 like right now, my right foot's asleep. I don't have to move because my right foot's asleep. It's just asleep. As we learn that when we can stay with, a, you know, a, a, an, an itch without scratching it, or a sense of tightness in the thigh without moving, we learn that we don't have to be a slave to present, to pleasant and unpleasant. It's just unpleasant, these certain body sensations. And we learn that our nervous system can handle it just fine. And we start to have more choices. And as we learn this through this embodiment, we then learn to do it with our emotions, to be able to stay present. So useful. This does open us into this feeling of being alive. We learn not to be afraid of pleasant and unpleasant. We become very conscious of pleasant and unpleasant. And we're not afraid of it. It can't, it can't control us in the same way anymore. And we gain so much clarity about our emotions. So much clarity about it. And our mind, as we cease to be so reactive, our mind gets more clear. And what I would suggest to you, and you can observe this for yourself whether or not it's true, as we become more embodied, we gain much more access to our intuition. I've worked with, um, I don't know how many hundreds, it may be in the thousands now of leaders, and many leaders want more intuition. This is, they, they, most leaders think they're smart already. <laughs> They have great confidence in themselves in that way. But they, they, they've seen this intuition and they, they want more intuition. And I tell them over and over again, just as though I was on a Dharma retreat, if you want more intuition, come into your body. Learn to stay present in your body because intuition is a felt sense. And interestingly, insight knowledge, Vipassana knowledge, is referred to as intuitive knowing. It's this felt sense. Thus, at the beginning is our whole practice. So amazing 
how this works. There's um, it is practice, you know. <laughs> it's hard. It's if it weren't hard, we wouldn't need to practice. But it's only hard, and it's only practice, and it's not always hard. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's relaxed. We encourage you in all of these different ways to. Be relaxed to enjoy yourself, to let the walking meditation balance out the sitting meditation. You'll sometimes have insights in your walking meditation. Didn't go into that this morning. We, we encourage you to uh, be very kind, to sit as comfortably as you can. If you need to take a nap, take a nap. We don't want this to be any extra hard. Just showing up is hard enough. But each time you show up, you are practicing. You are doing what needs to be done. You are taking that second kind of suffering. You are choosing the path of insight. You're choosing the path of moving to a responsive mind. You're choosing to know for yourself what, is, what brings liberation, what is the end of suffering. Another poem to end with. This is called The Real Work by Wendell Berry. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. It may be that when we, when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work, and, in, and that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. The impeded stream is the one that sings. So all of these rocks of your restlessness or your sleepiness or your uh, wanting it to be other than it is or these memories or uh, you're not happy with the food or whatever it is, all of those little mind moments of these rocks, the body hurting here, the body hurting there, that's the impeded stream that sings. That's the grist for the mill. That's the source of your practice. That very moment of experience is good enough. So let's sit together for a moment. Just noticing the body now. you be present for this body in this moment? Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still 
in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. for your kind attention. It's time for walking now. We'll be back in here for the last sit at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.